Beginning in verse 1, God's word says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he... And all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching in men. When they had left their boats to land, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, you are the master of all. As we look at this story, may we again grow in our desire to follow you, to see the joy there is in being your followers. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, what comes to your mind when you think of fishing? Some people love it. Uh, You might even say they're addicted to it. And they can think of nothing better than sitting there with a pole in their hands. They seem to have... A magic touch and every time they haul in another one or a bigger one or so they tell us I've fished many times though I'm not sure fishing is an accurate description of what I've done I mainly do a lot of casting and watching and then every once in a while I'll reel it in and yep the bait is still there on the line and I am not that successful there are some people in my family who are really good at fishing they seem to know what bait you should use where you should go when you should go and They always seem to catch fish. But from various times when we've wanted to go, we've gotten a guide to take us fishing because the guides really know. They know the exact spot. They know the right bait. They know exactly what to do so that you'll catch fish. Now this morning, we're going to examine a story, though, where the fishing guide is told, actually, the novice knows more than you, and he's going to lead the guide to get the greatest catch he's ever had. It's not just going to be a great catch of fish, though. It's going to bring out an incredible response from the fishermen. And this morning, as we look at this, we're going to see that Jesus cares much more than about fish. He cares about men. And as we look at this story, we'll see four things, not three. Got to throw a surprise every once in a while. We'll see in verses 1 through 3 that there's the need for the boat. And then in verses 4 through 5, the orders of the captain. And then verses 6 through 10, the incredible catch. And lastly, verse 11, following the captain. Well, this story begins on one occasion. We're not told how much time has transitioned from the last story. We're not given really a context. But Jesus is there. He's teaching. And the crowds are pressing him. They're jostling. They're pushing. They're wanting to get near him. And so Jesus, seeing Simon, who he recognizes, says, Hey, will you take me out in the boat? Now, Simon is there with his fishing partners. They've been out all night. And now they have to go and clean all the seaweed and other stuff out of the net. they got to mend all the places that got torn, cut up on the rocks. And 
Simon is willing to take him out. Now, this is not a small boat. This isn't the type of little rowboat that maybe as you go out on a lake, you're like, hey, let's rent the rowboat and go out. They have found, they discovered in the Sea of Galilee, a boat that was about 27 feet long and 8 feet wide, a very large fishing vessel. And Simon takes them out a little. And even here, this hints at Simon Peter's, because Simon is also Peter, his willingness to follow Christ. Because he could have said, well, no, I'm tired. I'm about to go home. I'm not going to push you out in my boat. But he's willing to take him out. And so we see the need for the boat. Now, it's worth noting, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth noting that Jesus didn't think that to teach or preach God's word, he needed to be in a specifically religious place. You may be familiar that in the 1700s, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, and then George Whitfield felt called to preach the gospel. But the churches of England would not let them in to preach. They didn't like the message of that salvation comes through grace alone, by faith alone, through Jesus alone. And so they barred them from their pulpits. And so the Wesleys and, the Whit and Whitfield were, well, what do we do? And then finally, drawing on examples like this, from the Savior, they said, well, we don't have to be in a church to preach. And so they started preaching from hillsides, in the countrysides, wherever they could preach the word of God. And then the church responded, rebuked them and said, they can't do that. You must preach in a church. And yet they said, no, we're following the master. And here we're seeing that God's word should be proclaimed whenever and wherever it can be. But next we're going to see that Jesus calls on Peter to do more than launch a boat. We see next the orders of the captain in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 he says, And when, fin when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And so he's telling Simon, Hey, go out and throw in your nets again. But Simon responds, Master, we worked all night catching nothing, but by your word we'll do it. So see, several factors here kind of incline Peter not to fulfill this request. First, the common time to fish was at night. That's the optimal time to catch the fish, not during the day. Jesus doesn't seem to understand when is the best fishing time. Second, not is it not night, but they just fished all night. And not only did they fish all night, they didn't catch a single thing. They're exhausted. They're frustrated. They're ready to call it a day. Or should we say a night? Fourth, They've just cleaned their nets. Now if they throw them in again, they, they know they're not going to catch any fish, but what will they catch? Seaweed. So then they'll have to go through the task of cleaning their nets all over again. And so everything about what Jesus says makes Peter want to go, uh, that's not a wise idea. We're not going to do that. R.C. Sproul captures this well. Most likely the thoughts going through Peter's mind. He writes, look, Peter speaking, Look, Jesus, your marvelous teacher, your sermons keep us all spellbound. There is no greater theologian than you. In matters of religion, you confound us all. But please, give us a little credit. We're professionals. We know the fishing business. We've been out there all night and nothing. Zilch. The fish just aren't running. Let's go home, go to bed, and try our luck later. But if you insist... If we must humor you, then of course we will let down the nets. I have a good friend who really hates it when people come and give him unasked for advice. He calls it kibitzing. Maybe other people do. I don't know. But they come up 
And without being asked, just tell him, oh, well, this is how you should clean your gutters since you're doing that. Well, this is how you should file your taxes. Oh, no, you should plan your vacation this way. Oh, this is how you should parent your children. And on and on. And you probably know people like this in your life. There's no area of your life where they don't feel like, well, I can just tell you how to live. They seem to think that they know it all. They want to share their all-knowing perspective and wisdom with anyone who can't run away from them. Now, my friend is not opposed to receiving advice. He welcomes advice if he needs it. But he doesn't like people badgering in and telling him how to run his life when they don't have expertise. Is that Peter's thoughts running through his mind right now? Does he see Jesus speaking just a little beyond that maybe Jesus is one of those know-it-alls? Is the carpenter-turned-preacher just reaching a little beyond his limits now that he's giving Peter fishing, not just advice, but commands? Yet, though all these factors are probably playing through Peter's mind, he responds with respect. He calls him master. Now, the word master here is for a spiritual leader, for a rabbi or a teacher. And though Peter notes why it's not really that good idea to cast out the nets, he's willing to do it. And that is the heart of discipleship, isn't it? A disciple listens to the teacher. A follower follows the leader. Jesus will say later in Luke 6:46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And yet, sadly, there's many professing believers who won't do what Jesus tells them. Now, my point is not that they sometimes are battling sin and they're overcome. Every Christian, until the day where we're reunited with the Lord, will struggle with sin and at times win and at sometimes lose. My point is that, sadly, especially in the U.S., there's many professing Christians who have no desire and make no attempt at all to obey what Jesus tells them in many parts of their life. However, we're called to follow Jesus' commands, even if they make us unpopular, even if they lead to ridicule, and even if they seemingly will do no good. That's what Simon Peter has What are all the other fishermen going to think as they see him relaunch his boat? What what is Peter doing? Like, like, I was about to go, and I'm going to sit here and watch. Is he going out again? Later, you know, they're going to be saying, I really used to respect Peter. He normally seemed to get pretty good catches, but do you know what he did yesterday? He he relaunched mid-morning. Was he at the pub before then? Is he losing it? And yet, though Peter knows what all the other fishermen will say, again, he says, if this is what you say, Master, I will follow. Since Jesus is the captain, he follows the orders. But we're going to see next that he's about to receive the surprise of his life. He's about to have the third point, the incredible catch in verses 6 through 10. So the men, they do row back out. And they throw in their nets, maybe rolling their eyes at each other as they do it. And then they get ready to pull in the empty net as their muscles go to, okay, here we go. All of a sudden their muscles strain. And then they have to brace their feet because the nets are bulging. And not just are they bulging, they start to tear. And so they start screaming to the shore, hey, come back out. And the brothers, John and James... They come out too. They bring their nets. And then their 
boats when they start filling them with fish. These huge boats, and again, not little rowboats, 28 feet by 8 feet wide, they start to sink. Well, then Simon Peter, upon seeing this boat sinking load of fish, falls on his feet before Jesus. He then says something that shocks us. He doesn't go, whoa, whoa, Jesus, 50-50 split. We'll do the fishing, you just tell us where. This is great. He doesn't thank Jesus for the career-enhancing day. Peter asked Jesus to get away from him. And he's not declaring, holy mackerel! He's declaring, you're the holy God. He wants Jesus to depart because Peter declares that he is a sinful man. Well, Peter's response here has really three amazing aspects to it. First, Peter didn't again use the term of respect that he did in verse 5. Master, which again was for a spiritual teacher or leader. Here, Peter uses the broader term for authority. And for a Jew steeped in the Old Testament, what clearly referred to God, because he calls Jesus Lord. No, Peter no longer sees Jesus as someone who can preach a good sermon about God. Peter realizes he is in the presence of God himself. This leads to the second amazing thing about Peter's response. And that is that he bows before Jesus, expressing humility, worship, and even fear of him. Peter's fear strikes modern day readers as odd. Well, why would he be afraid? But in fact, if you read the Bible, it's anything but odd. It's actually the norm. When God appears to Moses at the burning bush, it says in Exodus 3, 6, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In Judges 6, when God comes to Gideon, only by the angel of the Lord, he fears. Gideon does, and, it's, and he says to God, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Or a few chapters later in Judges 13, when the angel of God visits Samson's parents, Samson's father says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Earlier, Katrina read for us Isaiah 6. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, what did he do? He cried out, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Well, the third amazing thing about Peter's response is that he asked Jesus to depart because he realizes his sinfulness in comparison to God's holiness. Now, again, this kind of makes us scratch our heads because how could a boatload of fish, or actually two boatloads of fish, cause someone to recognize their sin? It's because Peter's realizing this isn't just a mere coincidence. It's not some insight into the running or spawning of the fish on the lake. Rather, the only explanation for this catch of fish is that Jesus is God. And then when Peter came to realize who he stood before, he realized, I can't stand before this one. I must bow before him. R.C. Sproul again writes, Sinful men are not comfortable in the presence of the holy. The cliche is that misery loves company. Another is that there is fellowship among thieves. But thieves do not seek the consoling presence of the fellowship of police officers. 
Sinful misery does not love the company of purity. We notice that Jesus does not lecture Peter about his sins. There was no rebuke, no word of judgment. All Jesus did was to show Peter how to catch fish. But when the holy is manifest, no words are needed to express it. If you've read The Holiness of God by Sproul, you know he then recounts a golf outing where this professional golf player got to golf with President Ford, Jack Nicklaus, and Billy Graham. And after the round was over, the golf professional comes back to the clubhouse and one of his other friends, another golf pro, said, well, how did it go? And the golf pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. He then marched off to the driving range and in fury nailed ball after ball out onto the range. And when he finally calmed down, his friend who had tepidly followed said, Billy was pretty rough on you today, huh? And the pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. And Sproul summarizes this by saying, astonishing, Billy Graham had not said a word about God. Jesus or religion. Billy Graham didn't have to say a word. He didn't have to give a single sideward glance to make the pro feel uncomfortable. Billy Graham is so identified with religion, so associated with the things of God that his very presence is enough to smother the man. He feels crowded by holiness, even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. And Peter realized he was before much more than that. Now, we can mask our sinfulness. We can compare ourselves with others and then go, we're really not that bad. However, when we come face to face with God, we realize that all that was was rationalizations, comparisons, and the mask of our shame and guilt are shown for how empty they are. John Calvin writes, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And so when Peter comes before the majesty of God, he immediately recognizes his sin. And Peter's cry is really the cry of every genuine believer to some degree. You know, we may not recognize the depth that Peter did at that moment, but every believer realizes that before God, we can't come on our own. That before his holiness, we fall woefully short. Thus, verse 9 goes on to tell us that not just Peter, but fear and amazement also gripped James and John and their other fishing partners. Again, this is not the ex reaction we would have expected. You, know, you would expect that they're thinking, our careers are about to get launched. Look, with this haul, we could buy more boats. We could become a whole fleet, Pete's fleet. We could hire some workers. Then we don't have to work every night. We could, like, go to bed and sleep through the night. We could have a retirement, second to none. You know, Jesus, if he could just show up once a year, that's, that's all we need. Life would be so different. However, their minds are not racing to the incredible nature of Jesus fishing or his business savvy but rather to the fact of the omniscience of Jesus and that he reveals whom he is. We wondered earlier, did Peter wonder if Jesus was a know-it-all? 
But rather than being the snooty and arrogant know-it-alls that we know, Jesus actually shows that he does know it all. He is omniscient. Not only does he know it all, but he also controls it all. You know, Jesus here is fulfilling the command in Genesis 1. Take dominion over the, and the first one is, fish of the seas. Why were all the fish in that location? Because Jesus commands every fish to where it swims. Thus, Peter has seen Jesus rule over demons, over sickness, and now even over the swimming of fish. You know, a being like Jesus, Peter realizes, deserves more focus and praise than any fishing business or career that might be launched. More important than his boat sinking with his load of fish is him sinking on his knees before the ruler of the fish. And this miracle is revealing not only who Jesus is, but it's showing us how we should respond. If you back up from this miracle for a minute and think about it in comparison to other miracles, it's really quite unique. Almost all miracles in the Bible occur when someone is in desperate need, like someone's about to die, or there's a famine, or someone has some drastic need that can't be met. Here, no one is starving for lack of a fishing business. Rather, this is just a generous gift that God gives. Well, why? Well, Jesus wants to show Peter and us that he needs to be the captain, the master of our life, not just in some areas, but in all of them. You know, Jesus can't just be reduced to the spiritual part of your life or the physical part of your life when the doctors can't figure that one out, then you can pray and Jesus might help. You know, Jesus calls us to submit to him, to make him captain and master over every part of our life, even those where we think we actually know best. You know, Peter thought, well, I know better the time and place to fish. I know. And yet Jesus is saying, no, even in the areas where you think you should rule your life, you should submit to me there. You know, the way a lot of people relate to Jesus could maybe be explained with this technological illustration. Imagine that your life was an operating device. We'll just call it a phone. And on your phone, you have many apps. And a lot of people think of Jesus as a great app. Hey, I'm going to go to a religious event. So I'm going to open the app of Jesus. That's wonderful. I love that app. But then when the religious event is over, they close that app. Because then they got to go on with parenting. So they open the parenting app. And then they got to go to work, so they open their work app. Or then it comes to their hobbies or the movies they watch and the language they use and the ways they spend their money and time and lifestyle. And they have an app for every single one of those. Except Jesus says, I don't want to be one good app along with many others. I need to be the operating system that controls every single app. So yes, when the religious app is open, then yes, Jesus wants to be there running that one. However, he also wants to be running the parenting app. He also demands that he controls the work app, the hobby, movie, language, money, time, and lifestyle apps too. But he's not just one addition to life, but he is the controller. You're like Peter, we want to say, well, look, Jesus... I know you can remove demons. You teach wonderfully. I saw you in the synagogue. You are so wonderful my, for my spiritual life. Thank you. 
Peter says, Jesus, that was incredible when you healed my mother-in-law. You're so great for praying to when we're sick. Thank you. But Jesus, I really know more than you about fishing or parenting or how to make a sale. Jesus, you don't know as much about language as I do because, yes, it's wonderful to be kind and gentle in church. But in the real world, sometimes you really have to let people have it. Yes, I know we should be truthful, but Jesus, you don't understand. Sometimes you really do have to lie. Sometimes I have to do this. I know better. Yes, you actually don't know that much about money. Because if I use my money to sacrifice and give to missions and to give to your stuff, that's actually not the best way to use my money. Jesus, look, time is my time. You can, yes, you can have a couple religious events throughout the week, but the rest is my time. I can't be always be leading a life of serving and putting others first. Jesus, that's, that's not yours. That's my time. You know, thank you, Jesus, for the spiritual help, even the physical help. But honestly, the rest of life is better run by me. But Jesus, though, steps into Peter's boat and says, row back out and cast your nets again. Now, notice that Jesus didn't berate Peter and didn't beat him over the head. Peter, you need to repent. Rather, he, in a very gracious, generous, and kind manner, shows Peter that, no, actually, I do know more than you in the area that you think you know best. I know better in every area, and I love you. And Jesus says, if you would repent of your stubborn desire to want to run things your way, and you would follow me, life would be better. Now, this is the tangible outworking of Paul's words in Romans 2.4, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You even see that in Jesus' words to Peter. Now, Jesus responds to Peter's cry to depart from me by telling people, Peter, you don't need to fear. You know, I noted earlier how it's actually the norm that throughout the Bible, when people come into the presence of God, they fear. But it's also the norm that God responds to those people by telling them, you don't need to fear. Now, God is not telling them that they shouldn't fear because of their sin. He's rather telling them that I'm gracious. I forgive. Thus, we don't need to be in terror and dread because God comes to make a way for us to come before Him. Now, the biblical irony is that the more we recognize our unworthiness to be before God, the more we are actually able to approach God. And the more we think that on our own we can come before God, the less we are actually able to do so. That's why Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or Isaiah 66, 2, in which God says, This is the one to whom I'll look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God looks at the humble and the contrite. Those are the ones welcome in his presence. The ones who admit, I shouldn't be allowed in your presence. You have the proud spirit of, I'm enough. I'm good enough on my own is the spirit that God rejects. Thus, in the moment when Peter wants to push the Holy One from him, Jesus puts his arms around him and says, come to me. The Holy One wants to pull Peter closer to him. Now, 
this is really interesting because Jesus is responding differently, if you weren't familiar with the Bible, than ways we would expect. You think about our lives, we're often trying to manage and cast before others a good image of ourselves. You know, people often post when they're in their best moods, when they're doing well, when they're having a wonderful time. And yet we fear that if people really saw how we lived, what we did, and how we thought they would what? They'd reject us. They'd have nothing to do with us. You know, if they showed up at our house before the 15 frantic minutes trying to make it look like we'd clean it, our house, we would be appalled. If they stepped in as they overheard us lose it in that argument and blow up in anger, if they read what we read, if they observed what we watched or lingered over or could see our thoughts, we fear that they would say, I never want to be with you again. We fear that if people really knew us, they would want nothing to do with us at all. However, there is one who comes and who does know all that, but he's the one who says, you don't need to fear, Peter. Come to me. See, he doesn't just know where the fish are. He knows every thought, action, and motivation. Yet he says to Peter and to us, don't fear. Come to me. Not only does Jesus tell Peter not to fear, but also Peter will now be part of Jesus' mission of fishing for men. You know, God not only beckons sinners to come be in his presence who don't deserve it, but he then also commissions those to go be part of calling others to be with him. So now instead of fishing for fish, he'll be fishing for men. Now Peter here has both a unique and a distinct calling that no one else will ever have, and then he also has a common example calling that we all experience. On the first hand, it's unique because Peter is going to be the spokesman for Jesus' 12 disciples. We even see that here. There's other men in the boat, but who is Jesus speaking to? To Peter. Peter will go on to be a major leader in the church. And he'll have a role that none of us could ever have. Thus, in this case, Peter must abandon his career and make his daily profession be a, that of being a follower of Christ and then leader of the followers. Yet, Peter's calling is also a model and common for all of us because in whatever area in which we live, we're called to daily follow Christ in that area. Now for most of us, that does not mean forsaking your career and becoming a paid missionary or pastor. However, like Peter, God often takes the calling in which we're already in and tells us to follow him there. Now I find it interesting that Jesus didn't tell Peter, hey, I want you to come become an evangelist. Or I want you to come become a pastor. I want you to become a church leader. Rather, he says, you'll be a fisher of men. He takes what Peter already loves and applies it in a new way. And so for many of us, God puts his finger on the very area where we think we know best and is best for us. And he says, follow me there. Thus it may be, follow me while you parent for men. Follow me as you train for men. Follow me as you fight fires for men. Follow me as you live in retirement for men. And on and on. Because wherever we are, Jesus calls us to follow him in that area. You see, God doesn't just call us for salvation, but he then sends us forth in service to him. 
to live the mission that he has called us to. Well, Peter and his friends respond to this call by Jesus by lastly, in verse 11, following the captain. It's interesting. They just said depart, but after Jesus' words, they don't want to depart from him. They actually go and follow him. Now, we're not told who all is, but looking at the context in other places, it's most likely Peter or Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and then also James and John. But notice, this was not a simple choice. They had to abandon everything. The call of Jesus to every single one of us is the same. It might not be giving up a fishing career, but we're called to deny whatever it is that seems best to us and follow Christ. Jesus says it this way in Luke 9, 23-25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? On one hand, coming to Jesus is easy and it's joyful because there's nothing we have to do. He paid it all. We can be reconciled, restored to God based solely on Jesus. All we have to do is trust Him. However, that call to trust Him also involves following Him and denying ourselves. Thus, if we profess to be believers, then we have to ask, have I given anything up to follow Christ? Have I merely made a profession of faith or am I following Him? You know, follow me is not a cliche. It's not just a nice thing to put on cross stitch and hang on a wall. Follow me is a command. It should lead to tangible actions. And there are no genuine believers in Jesus who are not also followers of Jesus. And so to follow him means you stop following something else. You stop going another way. Now you may have noticed that this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has interacted with an individual. You know, he's talked to crowds. He's talked to a demon. He healed an individual woman. But this is Jesus' first conversation with an individual. And I believe Luke is showing us here with the first interaction, what does it look like, Theophilus, because that's who he wrote to, and later readers, what does it look like to really understand and follow Jesus? And so Peter here is this model example. Now again, this isn't necessarily an exact replica, but it's the willingness to do so if called upon. Our following of Jesus might be in the classroom, on the soccer field, in the privacy of our entertainments, of the relationships we pursue, and on and on. You may be familiar with the story of Eric Little. He was a British runner, and he made it into the 1924 Olympic Games. He loved running, and he ran for a purpose. And he described that by saying, When I run, I feel God's pleasure. And he felt, for him, running was his way of following Christ. There's another British runner that entered the same 1924 Olympics, Harold Abrams. And he ran for a very different purpose. Before his Olympic race, he said, I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. I was afraid of losing. Now I am almost afraid to win. He talked in terms of winning the races, literally being life and death for him. It was about him building his identity. 
So both men go onto the track. And from the stands, it looks like two men running. But it was two radically different lives doing the same thing. And their radically different lives led to different responses. Because when Eric was told that the heat for his event would be on a Sunday, he told the British team, I won't run. He felt convicted that Sunday was the Sabbath and should be honored. And it shouldn't be used for such things as games. Well, the British Olympic Committee appealed to him. They appealed to his honor his country, to be patriotic. But for Eric, his following of Christ was greater. His love for Christ was greater than his love for his country. Now consider Eric's position. He trained for years. Running was what gave him pleasure and joy. He didn't love anything more. Yet the time came when following Christ for him came to a crossroads. I can pursue what I love or I can pursue following Christ. It was costly. But like Peter, little knew that the truth, he knew the truth that though following Christ is costly, it's eternally worth it. Well, Peter here came to see the same thing. For though this was the biggest catch of his career, of their career, he realized that there's something better to catch than fish. He had been caught himself by the love and the truth of the Savior, and now he wanted to catch men too. Thus, at the very pinnacle of his career, he left it all. And yet I wonder, if we ended here, would some of us leave this room discouraged? Because on most days, we don't live on the mountaintops of we just gave everything away for Jesus. We live in the, ooh, I just fell into that again. I thought I was following him, but now I'm wrapped with anxiety again. We stand in the tension that on one side we believe the battle for faith in Christ is worth it. And then the unbelief that doubts him. But consider the rest of the story because Peter has now seen a demon exercised. He has seen instantaneously and completely his mother-in-law healed. And he's now seen Jesus show that he rules even over the fish of the sea. Yet this is the same Peter who... A couple chapters later, Luke 8, when Jesus calms the storm, will say, who is this? So on one hand, he knows, and then later he won't know. This is the same Peter who will see Jesus walking on the water and will be afraid. And then he'll call out and say, if that's you, master, call me and I'll come. And he starts to walk. And that's where we are sometimes. Oh, we're trusting in the Savior. We're walking. And then what does Peter do? He looks around and he starts to sink. He believes and yet he doesn't believe. This is the Peter who will later say, Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus will say, blessed are you. And then moments later, Peter will rebuke Jesus. He believes, and yet he doesn't believe. This is the Peter who will boldly declare, everyone else may forsake you, but I never will. To only hours later, be denying Jesus three times. This is the Peter who, when Jesus is crucified, will be scared stiff. He'll be hiding And then he's the one who runs with joy. The tomb is empty. This is the Peter who, when Jesus rises from the dead, then goes, maybe we should go back to fishing. This is the Peter who then, when he goes and he preaches to the synagogues in Jerusalem and sees thousands come to faith, then goes, I really should only hang out with circumcised Jews. And so 
yes, we have this wonderful story of Peter here, and we have these moments. Every true believer has moments where I would do anything right now. And then five minutes later goes, but that seems actually really good over there. And so we live in this tension. You know, one moment we're doing fine. We're not anxious. We're not despairing. And the next, our life seems overwhelmed with our anxieties. You know, we're walking with joy. We're delighting in the Lord. And then moments later, we're so grouchy and irritable. Everyone around us is walking on eggshells. Except each time that Peter stumbled and fell again, the message was the same. Now, at this moment, Peter, trust in Christ. Forsake this sin or unbelief and follow me. Now, Jesus knows it all. Was he was on that boat, he knew Peter would have all these ups and downs. He knew that we would have all the ups and downs. And yet he still beckons to Peter and to us come to him. He commands and calls even now, come follow me. And I will welcome you. I will make you a servant of mine. I will make you a fisher of men. Come follow me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are all here at different places. Some might be on the mountaintop ready to throw it all and give it all to you for out of service and love for you others may have come a week full of forsaking you and chasing sin headlong and yet lord for each one of us the message the wonderful message is the same that you come with open arms willing to forgive willing to draw us back in again willing then to resend us out into this world to tell others the good news that you are the omniscient omnipotent savior who came to die in our place that we might live it's in your son's name we pray amen